Curse Designers Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. I think we've really done it this time. That was startling. Yeah, I think so. I think we've really done it this time. This I, I really enjoyed this episode, and it, we we talked about correctional medicine, uh, what happens to people when they're in jail or prison. But Paul, before we get into that, why don't you tell them where we're recording from and what we what we do on this sh- this fine show? Oh, happy to. I almost had this in the year of our Lord, two thousand eighteen. But we're actually at <laughs> SIGM or SGIM or SGIM, depending on who you ask. Um, but at the the annual meeting, um, and we have been for the past two days been interviewing experts and going to meetings and conferences and talks and workshops, and we have a treat for you this time around. We have three amazing guests um, to help explain uh, the practice of I'm not even sure we sort of settled on a term, but people to take care of people who have been exposed to the correctional system. I think is is the way that we came away with. But in any case. Before we get to all of that, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And then we do try to get to get to know the guests a little bit at the front. Um, don't skip past it this time because they're all especially fascinating. No, let's, let's get, forget that part because that implies that we had prior guests that were not fascinating. <laughs> so, But just listen, okay? Is, is it that hard? Just listen to the beginning. Uh, it reminds me of the... Remember the SNL skit with um, the Hurley boy? Like uh, it was like Adam Sandler was no. Okay, forget it. Anyway, look up. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> sure. It's like Adam Sandler. He's like, please, please let me stay at your house. And then Chris Farley would just be like, just let the boy stay at your house. <laughs> anyway, great. Uh, it's a great Adam Sandler Farley. Uh, and it's we. <laughs> so that's our pick of the week. <laughs> Paul, we've been recording for almost four hours straight. <laughs> Actually, more than four hours straight. Yeah. Uh, we have with us today, Paul, and we really have to thank him. He he found these three wonderful guests and somehow convinced them to come on our show. The great Justin Lee Burke. Justin, thank you for doing that. It was a great show. Excited that we were able to have him on. Thank you, guys. So why don't we get into our guest bios because we, we got to get on. We got a lot of show ahead of us. Sure. Okay. So I'll introduce Dr. Jonathan Giftos. He is the Clinical Director of Substance Use Treatment for the Division of Correctional Health Services at Rikers Island, where he oversees diversion, harm reduction, treatment, and reentry services for incarcerated patients with substance use disorders. He is also the Medical Director of the Opioid Treatment Program for the New York City Jail System, in which he also provides clinical care, including the provision of methadone and buprenorphine maintenance treatment to incarcerated patients with opioid use disorders. He remains closely affiliated with Montefiore and the Primary Care and Social Medicine Residency Program and currently serves as a volunteer attending in the Bronx Transitions Clinic at Montefiore's Comprehensive Health Care Center in the South Bronx. Dr. Giftus advises cities and states around the country on the provision of substance use treatment in correctional settings and has partnered with Physicians for Human Rights to advocate for evidence-based treatment for patients with cases before drug courts. Our next guest, Dr. Emily Wong, MD, MAS, is an associate professor at the Yale School of Medicine and co-founder of the Transitions Clinic Network. Dr. Wong's research focuses on promoting health equity for vulnerable populations. I I always have trouble with that (laughs) word, Paul. 
especially individuals with a history of incarceration through both prison and community-based interventions. She is a co-founder of the Transitions Clinic Network, which is a consortium of 15 community health centers nationwide dedicated to caring for recently released prisoners and defining best practices for the health care of individuals leaving prison. Our third guest, Dr. Aaron Fox, is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of General Internal Medicine at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Montefiore Medical Center. He's a primary care physician in a community health center in the South Bronx and a researcher studying opiate use disorder treatment in the criminal justice system. Dr. Fox is the director of the Bronx Transitions Clinic, which links formerly incarcerated individuals with chronic health conditions in medical care. And honestly, on a note, too, for people that are interested in addiction at SGIM, a lot of the conference was like the Aaron Fox show. He did uh, <laughs> right. help the criminal justice interest group. He did the update in addiction medicine. He helped, uh, he was part of a symposium on mass incarceration. He led the abstracts in substance use. I mean, he's, he was uh, everywhere in this, in this trip. Yeah, we we are very lucky to have these three wonderful guests, and I hope you enjoy the show as much as we did. We have three wonderful guests, as we've mentioned in our intro, and we're just going to go around the table. Let's go clockwise. Aaron, can you give the audience a one-liner and include something about yourself that you do outside the world of medicine? Okay, well, my name is Aaron. I'm a primary care doctor through and through, and I also like to think of myself as a writer, but I don't think my wife has ever read more than a paragraph of my work <laughs> <laughs> without falling asleep. <laughs> okay. What's, are you writing, are you doing medical writing or just, are you sort of writing fiction or poetry? Uh, nonfiction stuff, nonfiction stuff. Okay, cool. All right, John. Hi, um, my name is John Giftos. I am a, a doctor working in the New York City jail system for New York City Health and Hospitals. Um, outside of work, I have two uh, young kids. I just had a, a, a son in November, and they take up all of my my free time. Understandable. Okay, congratulations. Uh, and Emily, uh, how about you? One liner and something outside the world of medicine. What's taking up all your free time? All right, so I, I'm Emily Wong, and I am a physician, researcher, and I'm obsessed with decarcerating our country. Um, and I would say what is what takes up my a lot of my time is a family that I'm raising in Mandarin, Spanish, and English. Oh, so impressive. <laughs> I, don't <know> much, <laughs> I don't know how impressive it is. It's to be honest, your English is not that great. Most days. Yeah, I, I think that's great. That's great. How are the do the kids like it? Like they're not like they don't have a choice. They don't have a choice. Okay. Do you have kids? I mean, <laughs> they. I've tried to speak to them in Spanish, and they're just like, stop speaking to me in that language. Would yeah, they. I think they'll they'll learn the utility of it. Uh, well, <laughs> okay. Uh, Paul, Justin, did you guys want to ask any questions? I I think I heard there were book recommendations. So okay. during the 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 pre recording, so I, I'd love to have a book recommendation from the issue of you if you don't mind. Yeah, well, I just finished um, a book by Homer Venters, who was the chief medical officer in the uh, the uh, New York City jail system, and wrote a book, uh, Life and Death in Rikers Island, where it goes through a bunch of the high profile deaths uh, that um, when he was when he was working at Rikers Island that they had to deal with, and it goes through some of the issues that led to um, those adverse outcomes including lack of transparency in the whole system and uh, lack of surveillance for uh, health problems that were coming up. 
So Homer Ventures actually was one of the uh, docs that recruited me to work in the jail system, and he's a real uh, leader in this work. Um, you know, having two young kids, I mostly am reading like the Gruffalo and uh, books <laughs> like that. But uh, I, on my drives to and from Rikers, I started listening to books on tape, and I, I'm currently listening to uh, the Power Broker uh, about Robert Moses, and it's all about the sort of way the city was uh, designed over the last like 60 years. And I think it just gives it's like an 80 hour audio book, but it just gives a tremendous uh, historical overview of how neighborhoods were carved up and and uh, how public housing was built and that so much of the struggles we we face in the in New York right now are due to very concrete decisions that were made um, by people um, in power uh, many years ago. There's an amazing article, I'm trying to remember where I just read it, that, that looks at sort of structural racism based on sort of housing and what housing, how it was allocated at, at like a century ago and how that still correlates to gun violence in present day. And so how some of the structures that have been in place for decades at this point are still resonating and still causing you know the, the issues that we're running into. That's fascinating. Emily? Um, so, book recommendation. So if there's one book around incarceration, I mean, I think it's incredibly powerful narrative, either on, on tape, like you can get it on Audible or purchase it. It's Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. It's beautifully narrated, uh, really compelling uh, about his uh, work um, as a lawyer uh, pushing for death penalty reform in Alabama, which will be the site of next year's SGM. So um, it, that's the book. And then recently in the New York Times, a beautiful long piece form on Ruthie Gilmore and and, uh, and thoughts about abolition, what it means uh, to take down a carceral state, and how do we build a social system and structure that really kind of puts health and well-being at the fore. So New York Times, two weeks. Great. Yeah. Um, one of the questions, a lot of our uh, listeners are learners, either residents or medical students. Uh, can you share a piece of advice that you got at some point in your career um, uh, in medicine or, or, or addiction or, or uh, correctional health, but something... Um, a good piece of advice that we can kind of share with others. Well, I think I, I, my mentor gave me the same advice over and over and over and I didn't listen and I regretted not <laughs> listening and it was to focus mm. that I think taking on too many responsibilities during residency, during fellowship, um, you know, you, you want to constantly be pushing yourself and you don't want to close doors to new opportunities. But then at the same time, if you spread yourself too thin and you can't actually finish on projects that you're started, that you've started, it really, the quality of the work suffers and it's not even worth starting it from the beginning. Uh, you know, I think one of the most important things that I've been reflecting on lately is just this uh, th this idea that to talk less and listen more. Um, I think we, uh, especially as like a white man in the space with a position of power, I think when I'm in rooms, I can uh, sometimes be given a, a large platform to speak or I can take up a little bit too much of the oxygen. And so I'm trying to just be sensitive to, you know, the fact that we should be, you know, listening more. Um, and I think that's true clinically too, right? There's a lot of good, uh, you know, sad studies that have shown that we interrupt patients very quickly early in encounters. And right. I think just taking a moment to listen, uh, despite how busy and chaotic the day is, I think is uh, some of the best advice that I struggle to, to put into action. That's beautiful. You know, um, so I, I'm a med school advisor. Uh, and I mean, I appreciate the question, because I, I think I often um, get this question a lot. Um, you know, I think medicine as a field often kind of can track us and push us into really normal decisions, you know, like, I'm going to become the best pediatric 
gastroenterologist that does endoscopies, et cetera. And, you know, for me, a lot of uh, my passion for this sort of work started in medical school. And you can often get the messaging that the paths that move you forward are not normative, they're not traditional. You know, how can you make a career in this? And I would say that uh, the three of us and the communities and our tribe that kind of fill us are testament to the fact that you, in fact, can make a, tri- a career out of this, is to find that which motivates you to not lose that joy and push forward. And I think in particular for young learners and then um, people of color and women in particular, that these systems that are often inhabited by white men uh, and the hierarchies that exist and have come before us can often script narratives that are convenient and traditional and normative for them, and they just don't have to be. So... Um, that that's the advice that I would give is just to find that deep joy, struggle on, and find people that support and fuel you. Fantastic. I think we should we should move on to yeah. the topic here. And uh, Justin, I'll let you take it. Let's dive in. Well, you know what? Maybe I think because this is a little bit of a unique issue for us, um, can we have one of you and maybe Emily start just talk about um, – incarceration and how this has systemic health issues. Like, why is this a public health issue? Why is this something that should be in the realm of internists? Um, how is this a component of health care? You know, so, I mean, um, I think that just as a starter, and I think it was a shock to me when I first learned this, is that our country incarcerates more people than any country in the world, more people uh, than um, any kind of developed democracy, Russia, China, period. Um, And what has happened is that in the past few decades, three decades, the rates of incarceration have increased in spite of decreases, profound decreases in violence. And so we have an appetite for having incarcerated, and it's a systemic issue. It isn't a singular issue. It isn't one that's driven by the left or the right. It is an issue of our country. And in that, uh, in particular, um, what is notable is that we disproportionately incarcerate certain populations. So we disproportionately incarcerate uh, racial minorities to the point that the data suggest, at least from 2003, and then it's been repeated, that if you're a black man living in this country, you have about a one in three lifetime risk of being imprisoned. And this doesn't account time in jail. This is imprisonment. Um, And that racial disparity bears out for Latinos. It also bears out for women who are among the fastest growing population uh, behind bars. And so there's a significant disproportionate bias uh, in whom we incarcerate. It's along racial lines, and it's also along socioeconomic lines, right? And so we incarcerate poor folks of color. um, And in doing so, uh, then have subjected them to systems uh, places people that uh, are increasingly and certainly toxic. And so, you know, they're pushed into a jail or a prison, away from their family, away from the social supports and structures that they have. Um, and, you know, as we'll talk about uh, today, um, that has bearing for their individual health, their family health, and their community health. I think it might be helpful. We talked a little bit before recording to actually get into the language, too, because you mentioned imprisonment being different than jail, and then also just sort of how to talk about this patient population in general and sort of what what type of medicine that we're talking about. Would you mind sort of going through some of the terms that we should be using and hopefully using correctly during the recording? Sure. Uh, Yeah, these are, you know, it's a complicated uh, landscape and you're not taught this stuff in medical school and most people never learn, you know, the the various um, entities involved in the criminal justice system. But um, I think that 
there's many different ways to be under what we call correctional supervision or correctional control. Um, it could be anything from a jail, which is where people go when they've been uh, arrested and charged with something and they can't afford bail uh, to, to go back into the community. They may be detained in a jail. They may also serve a, a short sentence in a jail, usually less than one year. Um, people who've been convicted on felonies are generally transferred into prisons, um, whereas jails are marked by flux and chaos and a churning population. Um, the median length of stay in New York City jail, for example, is about two weeks. Uh, prisons are where people go to serve sentences, uh, generally more than one year. Most people in this country are in state prisons, not um, federal prisons. Uh, and uh, that has been a large growing population as well over the last 20 years. People who are in prison and then they are released to the community, sometimes are done so on parole, which is an extension of your sentence into the community. It's you're under supervision of a parole officer, and you can be sent back to prison if you uh, don't, you know, adhere to the conditions of your parole. And then probation is this sort of, you know, fourth type, which is generally in lieu of incarceration, people are placed in some community supervision status. Um, the key similarities between parole and probation are that these patients are at high risk if they um, struggle with a substance use disorder if their life becomes chaotic and they fall out of um, line, so to speak, they can be sent really quickly back into, a, you know, correctional settings. Can I, can I just jump in and, and summarize a little bit? I, I think an important way to think about why incarceration matters for healthcare is because it's common, as Emily was talking about. Years ago, residents interviewed um, patients in our community health center, and 50% of the people who were interviewed reported that someone in their family had been had spent time in jail or prison. Uh, chronic health conditions are common uh, in among people who are in jail or prison, that every chronic health condition that we take care of is overrepresented in people in jail or prison. And something like uh, chronic infectious diseases like HIV or hepatitis C are at least three to five times uh, increased prevalence in that population. Something like substance use disorders, it's estimated two-thirds of uh, people in jail and prison meet criteria for substance use disorders. So it's incredibly common. But additionally, we also think that exposure to the criminal justice system itself is toxic and contributes to worsening of people's health, both through the disruption in people's lives and medical care, but also the exposure to violence, the exposure to solitary confinement, um, the social isolation that people experience when they come home from jail or prison. And the patients that are, are the individuals that are incarcerated and have these chronic conditions and have comorbid substance use and presumably mental health um, challenges... How are those addressed in jails and in prisons? Is the healthcare, um, who's providing the healthcare? What type of healthcare are they giving? And, and can you guys talk a little bit about that so we know when patients are in, back in the community, what the contrasts there are? Healthcare in correctional settings, I think, is really heterogeneous and it varies all across the country from city to city and state to state. Um, and, you know, that heterogeneity is really, um, uh, challenging because it's not a, as a particularly well-regulated space. There's not, um, correctional health systems don't bill insurance typically, so they don't have the same oversight from 
payers that you might see in the community. Uh, and some parts of the country, because correctional health is funded by uh, municipal or state dollars and not insurance, people will invest less or more in the healthcare services. Um, as Emily mentioned in the, you know, our, in the previous session we did, you know, there is a constitutional right to healthcare, but the quality of that healthcare and what it means can really vary a lot. Uh, you know, just to give one example of, you know, in, in the New York City, for example, the, the city public health system, sorry, the city public hospital system provides health care in the jail system. And that um, is uh, allows the health care delivery there to be more integrated into the city's larger, you know, public hospital system. Um, but that's not the case in, in many places. Um, a very specific question, but does that mean there's medical record communication that way? I think sort of one of the transitional challenges is actually sort of obtaining any past records for yeah, patients. Yeah, there's, there's, it's easier to talk about patients with the larger system. You can you can share information more easily. Um, just what's interesting is most many correctional health systems don't use electronic health records. Uh, mm. But that we do in New York City, uh, yeah. which is important, but many places don't use electronic health records. Many doctors in correctional settings don't have internet access. You can imagine you know, how often we rely on up-to-date and things <laughs> like that. You know, um, oh. And so they're, they're really isolated, and correctional health is isolated from community health in ways that I think is, has you know, perpetuated a lot of the problems. What? The conditions that we talked about a little bit, substance use disorder, chronic infections like HIV and mental health care, are patients guaranteed, let's say someone has HIV and they, they get screened when they come into the prison system, and will they be started on ART and, and like will that be continued? What, what happens when they're in there? I, I just I never really learned about this before. So I can speak to one particular system, but I'd be curious to hear. I know Emily's worked in other systems, and I'm curious what happens in Connecticut. Uh, you know, you have you have to pay for all of these services with your you know municipal or state dollars, and so um, and a lot of what happens in correctional health has been driven by litigation and lawsuits of being denied access to things. Mm -hmm. uh, but for example, uh, if you come into the New York City health system and you're on whatever medication you're on, there'll be an, uh, an effort to continue it. Um, but in some parts of the country, they don't screen for hepatitis C, for example, because you're screening for something that you don't want to treat yourself because it's too expensive. Right. Yeah. And so you, you saw similar things, I think with HIV as well, there was not screening r routinely for HIV because, uh, the systems didn't want to pay, uh, to treat the condition that they've diagnosed. Do you think it, it, for most patients in the in correctional facilities are they getting treated? Emily, do you know? Like, is there data on this? Are they like for chronic for HIV? It's, it must be cheaper now to treat that than Hep C, at least. So the data that come from the Bureau of Justice Statistics estimates that the majority of individuals do see a physician when they're incarcerated and also are started on some medication as needed. So, you know, broad strokes, and I, I uh, appreciate uh, John's comment that there is real heterogeneity mm -hmm. uh, across the system. You know, just because you see a doctor doesn't mean that you've yeah, met any of your health needs, really, right? And that they're not attended to in a ways that satisfy you and your health uh, issues. And so um, but the Bureau of Justice Statistics, at least, which is a federal yeah, uh, survey that's run across uh, prisons and jails, estimates that the majority of individuals do see a physician uh, when they're incarcerated. It is different, uh, again, 
distinguishing between jails and prisons. So the rates are a little lower in jails than in prisons when people are incarcerated for longer times. Um, you know, I just wanted to back up into a question that uh, you raised, uh, you know, about a patient with HIV. And so um, I, I think it's important, you know, when thinking about uh, the folks who we incarcerate, that oftentimes uh, once they're incarcerated, uh, this is their first time accessing health care as an adult, that many of these individuals have never accessed health uh, um, care either because they're uninsured uh, or they're young, you know, presumably, you know, they think that they don't have any health conditions, so they don't go to the doctor. And so what happens is that once they've entered a correctional system, uh, they meet a physician like John, uh, they're screened for some chronic uh, or uh, infectious or non-communicable diseases, they're newly diagnosed with that HIV disease, right? About 40% of individuals that move in between a correctional uh, facility are newly diagnosed with a chronic medical condition for the first time once they're incarcerated. And so their whole experience of that chronic condition, HIV, opioid use disorder, hypertension, you name it, is impacted by this health system that we almost never see as as, uh, trainees, students, providers, et cetera. And it's this whole network, this whole health system that's out of our sight as community providers. And it's in that system that oftentimes actually the data are quite compelling, that viral loads actually do get suppressed, CD4 counts do improve for people with HIV. Um, That said, uh, you know, the studies uh, are prominently coming out of certain health systems. And again, so it just speaks to the the heterogeneity across health systems. I will say that um, for those who are incarcerated, um, you know, I don't know if any of you have gone into a prison or jail before. Have you? Great. So just a few of you. Um, You know, if you uh, see kind of how care is delivered, what you're going to see mostly is that people are woken up at the crack of dawn a correctional officer wakes you up. You go and make a med line uh, where a nurse gives you your pills. Uh, the pills, you know, are poured out in a cup. If it's your hydrochlorothiazide, your amlodipine, uh, your tenoph- whatever it is, you down this cup of water. They check to see if you've cheeked it. You go. You're escorted back uh, to your cell, and so uh, the care is incredibly passive. You don't have to think about it. It's there. You don't call a pharmacy. You don't. You have to access your meds. You don't need to know what you can eat and how you can eat it. None of that because it's all scripted. Adherence is really high, and so the data show that actually uh, viremia is well controlled. CD4 counts do improve when you're incarcerated, right? And so that's the system of care and. With the huge caveat is that there's lots of heterogeneity across. But again, it's a system that's uh, passive. It's a system that doesn't act for the ask for the activated patients that really knows how to manage their yeah. HIV disease, uh, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes. It's a system that if you're an insulin dependent diabetic, you never have to uh, inject your insulin. You never have a glucometer on hand, and so it's one where there's very little self-efficacy, very little that's asked of a person uh, in terms of how they manage their own chronic condition. Can I just bring it? I mean, the one the one situation um, which is really striking where people don't have access to medications is medications for opioid use disorder, where there's very few states in the United States um, where people are offered um, the gold standard treatment for opioid use disorder, either methadone, uh, buprenorphine, or extended release, now tracks on one of the three FDA-approved medications. So 
Rhode Island state prison, Connecticut state prison, and now New Jersey is offering uh, medications in prisons. But very, the, the standard across the United States is that if someone has opioid use disorder, they're incarcerated, even if they were taking buprenorphine. Um, one of the brand names that's commonly used uh, is Suboxone, if people aren't familiar with buprenorphine naloxone. If people were in a methadone program or if people were taking buprenorphine, then those medications are taken away from them. They have rapid periods of managed withdrawal or what people call detox or detoxification. And there's this sense that, well, if someone has a long prison sentence, then they're better off because then they'll have all opioids out of their system. But it's really this misguided approach with this assumption that incarceration is going to cure someone's addiction, um, which isn't, which just isn't what uh, the data bears out and what and isn't what we see in real life. So when people are released from prison, when people are released from jail, the risk of resumption of opioid use is dangerous. In that setting, people have lost physical tolerance because it's common to continue to use opioids within correctional facilities, uh, but people aren't using as often as they previously were. So then when people come home, if the resumption of, of substance use is high... And some studies, if you look at it, more than 75% of people uh, with opioid use disorder will start using again within three months. And then if people go back to using the same amount of opioids they were previously using, the risk of overdose is incredibly high. So um, big studies have, have demonstrated consistently in the United States and other countries in jail setting and prison setting that the risk of, of death in the two weeks following release from incarceration is 12 times elevated. And then specifically for drug overdose is more than 120 times elevated in the two weeks following release from prison. So this is something where the standard policy that's accepted across the United States is extremely dangerous. And it seems like such low-hanging fruit too, right? Because I think you mentioned the data seems pretty robust in what treatment can do while um, in correctional facilities. Um, my understanding, if you if you start someone um, right before discharge, you have a much lower chance of um, having relapse of your opiate use disorder. Of uh, you know, you have much higher chance of kind of maintaining outpatient treatment. Is that? Yeah, the, so I oversee the medical, the opioid treatment program in the New York City jail system, and uh, we have been fortunate to have since the '70s, early '80s, we've had methadone maintenance available to incarcerated patients, and buprenorphine has been available for the last at least ten ten years or so. Um, and there's, you know, I think Aaron referenced this, but there's this good international and now local data out of Rhode Island that shows that exposure to agonist therapy while you're in correctional settings uh, is associated with about a 75% reduction in post-release mortality. Uh, so it's a it's a pretty substantial uh, reduction. Yeah. So we um, and just to to sort of Emily's point, you know, we have um, uh, about. 70. So we have in New York City, there's, you know, thousands of people that pass through the jail each year with an opioid use disorder. Uh, the prevalence is probably about 15 to 20% of the total jail population. And 75% of people enter off any treatment. About 20% enter on methadone, 5% enter on buprenorphine. And 80 to 85% of people leave on medication. So it's a you know, it's a place where people have access to low barrier agonist therapy, um, but it is 
not uh, as easy to access those treatments in the community. And so everyone, you know, will say, oh, it's such a great that you're able to provide those treatments in the jail. And I always sort of get frustrated at any framing that thinks that a jail is a place to deliver a therapeutic intervention. We do it because they're there and because it saves lives and because we think it's the right thing to do. But we really would never want anybody to take home from this that, that jail is a place to, to kind of design or to implement these interventions. And Aaron, I think you'd mentioned there, there is health toxicity associated with being exposed to sort of the, the correctional structure. Is that because of these transition points or are we referring to, to something else? Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the toxicities that we worry about. I mean, it hasn't come up yet, but one of the things that I think all of us are very concerned about is exposure to solitary confinement. That we, in the Transitions Clinic Network, we did a study where we were screening people for post-traumatic stress disorder when they came home from prison uh, and entered the the um, clinical model for, for primary care. And among those patients we saw that people who had been exposed to solitary confinement were three to four times more likely uh, to screen positive for post-traumatic stress disorder um, than those who had never been exposed to solitary confinement. And that just really reflects what I see from my patients, that people are coming home with symptoms of hyperreactivity, of vigilance, of fearfulness, not wanting to be in public places. It makes it hard for people to seek care and to come into a busy community health center. So the overuse of solitary confinement in the United in the United States is is really something that's um, what I would consider a toxicity. And then also at Rikers, they've done research as well, looking at solitary exposure to solitary confinement in episodes of self harm when people try to hurt themselves or suicide attempts, and it's really tightly associated with the timing that someone is scheduled to go into solitary confinement. So people will harm themselves to avoid solitary confinement. People will end up in solitary confinement and then harm themselves to get out and then go to the infirmary. And it doesn't really matter whether it's a real suicide attempt or what they would say, people are just using it to manipulate the system. The fact of the matter is, if someone does something dangerous, like swallowing caustic materials, uh, in Dr. Venter's book, he talks about a case where someone swallowed a soap ball and ended up corroding his esophagus and he died because he didn't want to be in solitary confinement. He had a mental health uh, problem, which was exacerbated by that situation. And when he called for help, nobody responded. So this is also something that uh, is, certainly exacerbates people's mental health conditions, but also even people without um, chronic mental health uh, conditions can also cause harm. Emily, when we were in pre-recording, uh, Aaron brought up that he really admired the way that you brought up how you should ask a patient about incarceration. So could you share that? I think that's a really practical thing you could share with our audience. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. I mean, I think, you know, hopefully we've made the argument that it's a really common condition, um, you know, experience for people that you see in primary care, you see as internists. And so uh, I think the important thing to highlight is that we should be systematic about it, that we should be asking everyone about it, given how common it is. Uh, and then we should ask it in a way that's not biased, right? So that there are so much, uh, there is so much discrimination and stigma around incarceration to be very careful and cautious with how you 
you ask. So the standard way I ask, and I ask it in our social history section, you know, where you're really digging into things that you say, you know, I ask this of everyone, but these are kind of sometimes tough questions, is have you or any family member ever spent any time in jail or prison? Um, I ask that without bias to all my patients. And what I have found over time is that it's important um, as a launching point of understanding kind of their own management of their chronic conditions, uh, why they've been absent from care, why they may uh, have concerns or mistrust issues within the health system. It's an opening space to also then talk explicitly and actively about, look, we think one of the most um, important things for keeping you healthy is not having to go back in. So what can we do uh, to prevent you from going back in? It does not mean that we want to know uh, that person's crime. I mean, I think among each and every one of us, we have deep fears, notions about criminal behavior, what is right, what is wrong. All of us have those real deep biases given where we live and who we are. And so um, this is not a place to say, you know, I'd love to know what you committed, how you committed, but it is a place to say uh, that it we're here as a healthcare provider to think about how it is that we keep you healthy. And so they're really kind of productive launching points to then say, how do we keep you out uh, and home? So I'll actually say, you know, a lot of our episodes, we have case studies that have a funny patient's name. That's like a pun. And I feel like a little bit, this is almost a little more of a somber tone because yeah. of the tragedy of, of kind of the issues that we're talking about. Um, but to bring it back to uh, a specific patient or a specific case, um, if we had a you know 34 year old gentleman who has hypertension and diabetes or has kind of some um, um, chronic health issues was recently incarcerated coming to the clinic, um, can you guys speak about what are some of the unique challenges of pa- patients that are that are post incarceration or um, what they might be at risk for or things that we should be as uh, primary care providers uh, working on to improving their we're taking care of them as we should. Well, I think one of the things that Emily already mentioned about self-efficacy and self-management skills is uh, something to focus on. Um, something to focus on when when people are coming home, uh, they may have high levels of mistrust in just uh, the healthcare system in general, and um, breaking through that mistrust um, can be really, really challenging. And there's you know there's differences between jails and prisons. If people have a short stay in uh, jail, it can be really disruptive and can create chaos in their life. So coming, you know, if they have diabetes or hypertension, continuing those medications may not uh, be their first priority. Um, but if someone's been in prison for 20 years and then they come home, they may not know how to navigate the healthcare system. They may have never picked up a prescription, a medication from a pharmacy with a prescription. Uh, but I think the n- number one thing for people to be aware of is the amount of trauma that people experience, that when people pass through jails, there's high levels of violence, and people may have had um, traumas from that, especially women who are incarcerated uh, may have had a history of sexual abuse uh, when they were growing up, or even sexual assault within the jails and prisons are, are common. common. And as a clinician in the community, being able to provide trauma-informed care is really, really important. And what that means is not just the provider, but the entire staff. And I, you know, sometimes I think about if somebody had a bad experience seeking medical care while they were in prison, and they're worried about being stigmatized because 
They just came out of jail. And then they end up at the clinic. And the first person that they see, the clerk is just having a bad day and snaps at them. And they're expecting that they're going to be stigmatized. Then they may interpret that as saying, oh, my God, they know that I just came home from jail. Everybody's going to treat me like this. Uh, and then we lose people and uh, people are hesitant to seek care. Um, so I think staff trainings, but also uh, providers being uh, able to think through trauma-informed care, what it means, the type of words that you use, the type of tone that you use um, when you preparing someone, if you're going to touch them or do a physical exam, really being attuned to the possibility that they have trauma. And I, I, it's, this just makes me think of uh, one of my patients when uh, they really taught me an important lesson um, is I was, I'm a primary care doctor. I'm board certified in addiction medicine. I do research on opioid use disorder. I'm very attuned to prescribing opioids and the risk of addiction. And I feel comfortable setting limits with patients. And one of my patients, I was trying to set a limit about prescribed opioids. And um, she had got a prescription from another prescriber, even though we had talked about that, well, if you're taking chronic opioid therapy, I'll be the one who's prescribing you the medication, and you really shouldn't get prescriptions from other doctors. And when I was talking to her about it, I was trying to be firm because I thought, you know, two, having two prescribers can be a risk factor for problems or for overdose. And she said... Dr. Fox, you're, you're scaring me. You sound like my parole officer. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, Mrs. So-and-so, I'm so sorry. But also, you know, the fact that she was able to say that, that she, despite the power dynamics that are in the room, that are in the office, she still felt comfortable enough to bring that up with me, I think reflects the um, relationship that we had at that time. But it's also a constant reminder about the way that I, I talk to people. It's yeah, it's a nice story. I just want to. Um, <clears throat> I'm really glad that Aaron mentioned trauma. Uh, we talk about it a lot. It gets uh, when we talk about trauma in, in the jail or prison system. I think people have something in their mind of you know violence, brutality, assault, and that definitely exists. Um, but what I I also see, and I think it's important, is to acknowledge that trauma for many of my patients is are things like abandonment and neglect, um, and that have that have maybe been uh, for big parts of their lives, you know, and that. Um, so that kind of trauma, grief of like witnessing violence, you know, witnessing uh, somebody shot and killed in your neighborhood or having domestic violence in your home, that stuff all is also trauma and can manifest, I think, in ways that complicate um, relationships with healthcare systems. Just to double down on Aaron's point, you know, uh, slow to trust, hard to make behavior change, maybe like uh, difficulty, like managing frustration or poor frustration tolerance or um, those things that our system, I think, does a, you know, it doesn't always attribute to trauma. It attributes to this person is difficult or this person is hard to manage. We would prefer you find another clinic to go to. That kind of pushing people away. And I think when you like learn about the way trauma manifests in people's lives, uh, you can start to teach your health system to better engage people who, who show those kind of health, health behaviors. And uh, I, I talk a lot about um, the 
the first person that people usually encounter when they come into a clinic is often the clerk. It's not the doctor. So you could train doctors all day long about being warm and non-judgmental and using person-first language. But if the person doesn't even get into the exam room, you know, you're not you're not really able to care for that yeah. patient. And so I think we could do a lot more to sort of work with our front desk staff and our receiving staff, the people that answer the phones, et cetera, to kind of uh, have more sensitivity around some of these complicated issues. The other thing I might add to this is that for the patient that Aaron saw and the patients that I see, you know, each and every day, um, it's the health system that presents barriers, but also we have larger systemic barriers for these patients that have histories of incarceration to meet basic needs. And um, specifically what I mean are the hundreds of thousands of collateral consequences that exist after a person's released from having served their sentence in a a jail or prison. Um, And state by state it varies, but this ranges from having, in my home state of Texas, a lifetime ban if you've been convicted of a drug felony to getting access to Section 8 housing or food stamps. It's a lifetime ban. In certain southern states, you have a lifetime ban to voting, a fundamental principle of our democracy, and you've lost the right to vote. And so what it connotes to the person coming home is that you're not their citizen. It connotes to them that actually you've served your sentence, but we're going to still have you serve more. And if you think about kind of what we do as an internist, and we're in this big push of understanding that we have to meet people's social needs, and what are these, you know, quote unquote, social determinants of health, that incarceration presents additive barriers to actually meeting the fundamental basics of housing, food, reintegration uh, with patients, families, employment. And so again, there's these large systematic barriers at force, state by state, that really constrict our ability to provide a, a meaningful health uh, and health care. I, I was going to ask you about transitioning. Pa- like, do patients get, it, it sounds like probably when patients are getting discharged or released from prison, they're probably not thinking like, I got to get to my primary care doctor within a week. Uh, this, so it sounds like they're probably thinking about what am I going to do for housing and work and, you know, to feed myself, let alone like how am I going to pay for my insulin or my, my medication for hypertension. So it just sounds, it's, it sounds like a very challenging situation, but what efforts or what exists, if anything, to get them connected? Like, are they, do they get paper records on the way out the door to and say, like, here's your medical records so you can at least see what meds they were on while they were there? So I think one of the most profound kind of criminal justice reform policies that we've seen in a decade is uh, the expansion of Medicaid through the Affordable Care Act. And so to me, states that have expanded Medicaid, that probably is the single largest criminal justice reform policy there's been, mm-hmm. um, whereby now uh, young adult men that without children actually formally for the first time have access to Medicaid. And so this enables them the ability to at least pay for the basic services that Medicaid in their states have. So that's huge. Certain states, certain jails, uh, state prisons in certain jails uh, do have uh, a discharge plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's variable. Uh, in, again, my home state of Connecticut, what they have is a voucher program uh, that people that once they're released from prison, they get 30 day supply of a medication. But as the literature indicates, many people actually with that voucher, it's just not enough. It's just not their highest priority. If they don't know where they're going to live, how they're going to feed themselves, you know, then they're not rushing over to CVS to get their voucher, right? So there are discharge structures in place uh, and also kind of larger policy uh, measures that have been passed to really bridge that gap. Um, One of the things that uh, we've been able to do through the years uh, is 
build upon a network that puts uh, patients' priorities, their values, uh, and their preferences first through Transitions Clinic Network. And it was through conversations with real leaders uh, and uh, formerly incarcerated leaders uh, uh, that we thought about how best uh, to make uh, our healthcare system within the community more responsive to their needs, uh, really realizing that that transitional period is a very vulnerable time um, in, an in an individual's life. And so um, created a model of care, hopefully, that is uh, responsive to these needs, whereby we hire people with histories of incarceration to work in the health system as community health workers. Um, and uh, it's that community health worker that I think bridges much of the mistrust that we talked about, starts helping uh, the individual build self-efficacy skills, helps them just like as a person to call on. You know, like once you're released, you're feeling isolated, it's lonely, you know, you've come home after 30 years and you're like, I don't even know what this, you know, like what's the World Wide Web? right? So that kind of business, that's a person to call up and then actually be able to connect with. So the community health workers embedded within primary care, working alongside primary care physicians like ourselves. And it's that connection, it's that interdisciplinary team that actually, um, I think, provides a transition uh, home uh, for, again, these 2.2 million people that are incarcerated in jails and prisons. I was just going to ask Emily, um, in New York, uh, the community health worker that we you know, have worked with with the Bronx Transitions Clinic was associated with Osborne. And so the Osborne Association as a reentry organization had so many additional services to support people as they're transitioning. Is that the case in the Transitions Clinic all around the country where the CHW is also a part of a reentry organization? Um, no, each... Each Transitions Clinic program is really built upon the assets that exist within the community health center and the cities or, you know, and neighborhoods in which they're situated. So uh, the Bronx Transitions Clinic uh, um, program has an amazing, I mean, Aaron's better suited to talk about this, an amazing community health worker that was based in uh, this reentry organization that uh, provides and attends to all these social determinants, you know, employment needs, housing needs, legal needs, et cetera. Um, each of our Transitions Clinic program, however, does partner with community-based organizations that do attend uh, to these social determinants of health, and that's a huge piece of what we do. It's that, you know, we contend that these are equally as important, if not more important, than getting your script for your insulin, right, and learning how to use a glucometer, and so um, that's a key component. The other component is just to transform primary care, right, is to um, create spaces within primary care that are trauma-informed, that provide open access care. Care that really say, look, we're here for you when you when you need us to be here, not when the doors are open. And so, again, um, transitions clinic programs are based within community health systems and often structured in ways that aren't as patient friendly. And our community health worker then enables us to be able to provide care where our patients at versus within the community health system. Erin, anything to add? Well. Usually when I talk about um, our transitions clinic and the barriers to care that people face when they're coming home from jail or prison, emphasize that as a healthcare provider, just having an uncaring demeanor can send the message that you don't really care about your patient and then people don't come back. And it's been published in the literature as a barrier to care. And something as simple as that, we 
I was fortunate to work for years with, I would, I would work on Saturdays and we had a walk-in session to make it easier for people to come into the clinic because there was less people at clinic on Saturdays and they didn't have to wait in a, in a busy waiting, waiting room. Um, it was open access. So people we didn't have to worry about people showing up late or uh, missing appointments. But also I worked with this lovely nurse, Ms. Diaz, who really our patients loved. Uh, she had this, um, just warmth um, to her where when people came home from prison, she wasn't judging them. She was just really showing all of our patients love. And I think that was such an important component in addition to the community health worker building trust and having providers who did have some knowledge about care for best practices for people who have criminal justice involvement. Well, I don't want to take more of your time. So any burning questions before you like maybe get like an ask or a plug they can. No, I, I wanted to ask, hopefully this isn't too broad. Like this has been tremendously inspiring and like a really, I think a great entry point um, for this issue. I guess I'm wondering for our listeners and for me selfishly, like we're, what are good resources to learn more about sort of how to provide this type of care and also, and just even in terms of advocacy, like where do you kind of start? Because it's just such a big topic to wrap your hands around. You know, there's there are national organizations that are dedicated to correctional health, and I think Aaron and Emily could speak to those. Um, is the uh, a the American ACCJH? Is that what it, I always say? I'm bad with the acronyms. Um, <laughs> there are some good you know sure. national organizations, uh, but I was actually before you jumped to that question, I was going to say just if I had to say one thing that um, is that most people wherever they're practicing, um, don't have a really a clear sense about what the correctional settings are like in their city or state, where, who delivers healthcare there, what would you do if you had a patient that was detained and you wanted to share important medical information, what are the points of contact, um, or to visit. And I think, you know, I, th there's a great Nelson Mandela quote that I'll butcher, but it's basically, you know, if you want to understand a, na a nation or really see a nation like visit its jails and prisons, um, I think going inside correctional settings is incredibly important to understand what our patients experience and how healthcare is delivered. But I would just make a plug for trying to work with your local public health office or your community leaders to try to understand better your correctional settings in your in wherever you are may work um, so that you can understand perhaps how better to partner or whether you can, some people may work there and try to improve care there. Um, and to, I think that to make correctional health a part of community health and to try to break down some of those barriers. And it's really, you know, because it's so different across the country, there's not really one piece of advice as how to do that. There's 50 county jails, for example, in some big states, and each has its own leadership and healthcare delivery system. Um, but just to, to, you know, we are pretty good at tracking down information when we need to for our patients, right? That's what we did as interns. And, sure. you know, so, so kind of being a little bit like a detective and trying to figure out how to learn more about your own correctional health system, I think is a, a really important uh, for everybody to do. So the, the acronym ACCJH is the Academic Consortium on Criminal Justice Health, and they have developed materials for, uh, for curricula on criminal justice and health and for uh, best practices. Um, I think I also know if people just Google the fortune society put out a pamphlet, um, for caring for women with criminal justice involvement, uh, women with HIV. And in that pamphlet, there's 
some of the language, some of the stigmatizing language to avoid. So I think that can also be a good resource just to look through and understand a little bit about trauma-informed care, how that informs um, some of the best practices and some of the words to avoid. And for medical people who are interested in the epidemiology and the research, uh, they should look at Dr. Wong's research. She's done uh, a lot. <laughs> she's done a lot of the most important work in this field, and she she may she's probably too humble to bring it up, but I uh, had a paper in Lancet, which she can give the reference for, which I think is a really good starting point uh, for understanding both the scope of mass incarceration, um, the direct impact on health, and then some of the other indirect uh, in, uh, effects on healthcare delivery with uh, Chris Wellman. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we published it in Lancet last year as part of a series of papers that uh, came out in Lancet looking at inequality in the U.S. And so, uh, yeah, last year, 2018, Chris Wildeman and myself. Thanks. Um, so I would say uh, as a resource, as a place, I'm going to pitch a, a med school, a med student uh, um, in, endeavor that I think has been great. Uh, they have a monthly uh, kind of digest of the key articles that are uh, focused on criminal justice and health. It's called Just Health. Um, and it's great. I mean, I, I think this that energy, that spirit is it reminds me it's that students, residents, and fellows really are going to lead us out of uh, this mass incarceration that we've created, you know. So um, that I would turn your attention to that. It's great summaries, really pithy, and uh, right on about their digestive of what are important research articles. And dare I say Twitter? Not to Twitter. pitch it, but there's really I've I found that to be a really a space where there's a lot of discussion around some of these issues, and yes. it's actually how I connected with Emily, I think, and uh, it's just a lot of uh, of uh, learning to be had there. Uh, Aaron, are you on Twitter? Uh, yes, A D F O X M D, and I tweet a lot about opioids and the criminal justice system and um, some of the science uh, that informs some of the things that we've been talking about today. Uh, yeah, John, J-O-N, Giftos, G-I-F-T-O-S-M-D. Um, that's my Twitter handle, yeah. Okay. Emily? E-W-A-N-G-422. All right. And we'll have them in the show notes, too. So that, Yeah. You know. All right. This is so fantastic. Thank you. Right. Thanks for the opportunity. This is great. Really Thank great. you. Appreciate yeah. you guys. All right, Paul, let's do an outro. Here we go. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> Just better every time. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. But to do that, we need feedback from you, the listeners. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. And uh, I'd like to especially thank Justin Lee Burke for writing and producing this episode. And to anyone else who helps out in post-production, to be determined, probably Nora Toronto, who's also <laughs> sitting already on here. it. Nora's killing it. <laughs> Nora, yeah, Nora is always killing it. What a That's star. Yep. All conference long, she's been crying. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. I think it's Nora killing it Toronto. That's her. <laughs> yeah, there it is. There it is. Yeah, so you should keep that as your you know, yep. physician name yep. when you finally get your degree. Yep. Yeah. 
our and thank you to our whole social media team hannah r abrams on twitter beth garbs garbatelli on instagram and chris the chew man chew on facebook uh until next time i've been dr matthew frank Watto. i've been dr justin lee burke and i remain dr paul nelson williams thank you and goodbye <laughs>